You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and uh, welcome to episode 52. So uh, we're still it, making it, progress. Every week when you say that for the podcast, it still surprises me. Like yeah. I keep, it's almost yeah. to me, it's like a countdown as to when, when are they going to say, all right, that's enough. You guys are done. Yeah. And, and this should be an interesting discussion too. Um, I've mentioned a few times that I'm, I'm a country bumpkin. I've don't enjoy going to the city most often and a lot of times it's because there aren't a lot of plants there's, there's not a lot going on but, but our guest today is trying to change that well you grew up in the country you know i even though i grew up in the suburbs and i grew up in a large suburb my family was from philadelphia and they moved to the suburb suburbs right before i was mm-hmm. born so we spent a lot of time in the city uh when i was a kid and actually whenever we would have family come in from out of town which wasn't often or friends we would spend all of our time in the city so it's <laughs> I, I'm very – even though I've never lived in the city, I'm very comfortable with the city. Mm. I, I could I could be a city dweller, I Yeah, think. I couldn't. Although I do enjoy living in – like for where I live now, I'm in, the, I'm in the country. That was an adjustment for me, and mm. I enjoyed and appreciate it. I may be one of those people that says they can live in the city until they live in the city. Yeah. And then like, – I, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I moved from where I had no neighbors to having one neighbor, and <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, you know, my neighbors are really far away, and yeah. they could they could host a concert in their yards, and I wouldn't hear it. So I'm sure I would be the first person to complain if I were in a townhouse and mm-hmm. I heard my neighbor's TV. I'd be like, what is this? I can't take this. <laughs> so – but anyway, yeah, I, I'm really excited about this episode. Um I love when we have on uh, guests that we know and that we mm-hmm. work with, and we don't get to do it often. So I'm I'm always excited when it's a familiar face, um, and we're familiar with with what we're going to talk about. So that's today. But before I forget, on the last episode during Saul's voicemail, because I always get so flustered with all the misinformation in those voicemails, and I lost my train of thought when he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> calorie pear <clears throat> which we did get a suggestion for a low calorie treat and that was uh on um one of our facebook posts um, about the red bud and how yeah. red bud red bud flowers are edible edible and uh <laughs> tastes like sweet peas and um someone said well maybe that's your low calorie tree yes yeah, so, yeah okay. exactly so but what i was going to mention was because it was a perfect tie-in but i was so flustered if he's so worried about calories and and health conscious uh, I was going to recommend Nutrition for Longevity, which was Jennifer Maynard, who was just on our uh, soil episode. I had a chance to – I know you looked beforehand. Mm-hmm. I didn't look till afterwards. So a lot of farm-to-table meal choices that – it's farm-to-table farm to, – farm to your front door in 48 hours. Yeah, something like um, And a lot of pescatarian and uh, <laughs> vegan uh, meal cho- – actually, mm-hmm. it's all either vegan or pescatarian mm-hmm. meal choices. But they looked fabulous. Yep. So if he was really concerned about – how he was eating maybe that's a great choice for him but anyway i we should probably get back yeah yeah so uh, that's a good plug for them um i was really interested to see what they were doing and then especially to see that they're using native plants in in a variety of ways you don't normally think of 
uh, conventional agriculture, not their conventional agriculture, but agriculture and and native plants going hand in hand. They should, and but they don't always do that. And that was a scenario where they were. And that's their whole philosophy, yeah. which I appreciate. Not, I'm willing. I think at some point we probably need to have Jennifer back on, maybe mm-hmm. as a one to one, so yeah. we could discuss that more with her. Because I'm interested in knowing more. Yeah. On yeah. Him. But on to today's guest. And uh, if you didn't get my my hints, he's resides in. New York City and does a lot of his work in New York City, um, and as I mentioned, it's I've always a place I would we'd go to Broadway, we'd go to places, but I didn't always love going to the city because I like being in nature, and that didn't seem to have a lot of nature. But maybe I'm wrong. That might not be the case. So uh, today's guest is Jason Smith from NYRP, New York Restoration, New York Restoration Partnership, and uh, Jason, why don't you introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about what NYRP does? Sure. So. Um... My name is Jason Smith. Again, I'm the director of Northern Manhattan Parks for New York Restoration Project. And real short, what we do is build, program, and care for green space um, in all five boroughs of New York City. And we really focus on trying to create accessible, well-managed green space in neighborhoods of need. So, you know, there there's um, some inequality in distribution and access to green space in the city. And so that's really core to our mission is to try to do what we can to remedy that. Awesome. Um, and I, it's funny, I, I, I love hearing you guys talk about life in the city because <laughs> one of the reasons I always try to make it out to Pinelands to pick up whenever I can, because um, it's always hard to leave. I always try to grab lunch in town <laughs> and um, sort of daydream about staying for a while. <laughs> you know, and I, I, my, one of the things that with the pandemic that has spoiled me is that we're, we're not super congested around here, but we can be, but it's even less. Like you can go anywhere you want and not have to wait for anything and, mm-hmm. and get space and get peace. And now that we're, we're starting to come out of that a little bit, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I like there's a little bit of a backup on the highway. I don't know that I like that. Like I've gotten so spoiled mm-hmm. that uh, I don't know. That's, that's yeah. why I'm thinking I, I wouldn't be able to live in the city. <laughs> it, it's Life is profoundly different, but when it comes to nature – I mean, it, I think it continues to surprise everyone how diverse and abundant wildlife is in mm-hmm. really dense cities. Yeah. You know, and I'm particularly lucky to work in northern Manhattan. It's a really dense, busy part of the world, right? It's been a city for a long mm-hmm. time, but we have these great chunks of, of parkland and kind of a, a unusual topography, and the wildlife is, is just incredibly abundant, and it's right on top of super busy neighborhood. So it really challenges ideas about, you know, we tend to think about culture and nature as, as sort of uh, opposites. And, yeah. and yeah. working in Northern Manhattan, it kind of mixes that up in really interesting ways. You know, we have little natural seeps that wash down down um, cliffs right onto the sidewalk on one of the parks I manage. And, you know, you'll turn around and see a red-tailed hawk eating a squirrel on the corner. So it's, it's, um, it's a really cool place to work. And, um, you know, I think when it comes to plants, it's great also, you know, I think the, in general, the diversity, like uh, on an urban rural gradient, um, just plant diversity, when you actually get to a city, it tends to be higher than rural ends. Um, and part of that is all the exotics, but mm-hmm. we also have a lot of natives left and a lot of interesting spots for, for restoration. 
just require a kind of a different approach. Yeah. You, you, so, you know, I'd love to get into that if we have the opportunity. Oh, if we I, talk to I, I would love that. When we had uh, Dr. Enrique Sala on from National Geographic, one of the things that he mentioned was – and it was interesting, and he, he, he wrote about this in his book also, is that – you don't think about it, but like New York City is an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. it, it may not be a completely natural ecosystem, but it is an ecosystem within itself. And if you were to abandon it, eventually it would become a natural eco. <laughs> eco yeah, and he yeah. brought up Chernobyl as as an example, how life continues even after that. Mm -hmm. And just he's like, if everyone were to leave New York City tomorrow, eventually it would it it should naturalize itself. Mm -hmm. Well, with the amount of invade, I don't know that our are even where we're at right now if it would naturalize itself if we were to walk away but but i i love that concept so i, I yeah and it it happens so quick i mean it would never be free of human influence but even we work in a lot of sites that have been abandoned from former uses and right away you see soil formation and and successional dynamics happening but they they are different for sure mm. and and i think even if people disappeared it would be a different trajectory but it would certainly become wild overnight. And um, I, I, I love and that ecosystem idea is super important as well, you know, because it sounds when you say it, it sounds like a straightforward thing. Of course, it's a mix of, yeah. of organisms and, and, and it, a flow of materials and energy. But really, we don't live like that. And we don't think about the city as an ecosystem. But if you really do, it, it, it really like I think it pushes you to think a little bit harder about how we um, interact with the ecosystem and, and how we guide it. No, and it, it, you have to be creative. One of the and, – and Tom, you'll have to remind me in case I get it wrong. One of the more creative examples, is it Hunt, Hunt's Point, Hunter's Point? Oh, uh, Hunter's Point South. Hunter uh, – where it was – you know, they, they took an abandoned pier, mm -hmm. recreated wetlands, but incorporated it – you know, incorporated incorporated human interaction yeah. into that yeah. wetlands which is important you know because there's so little space for naturalization it, it, i'm sure there's plenty of space but it's yeah. it's less than what that we're accustomed to yeah. here to in, incorporate people into it so that they can connect with mm -hmm. nature and, and have that biophilia yeah I, I think having that and kind of getting comfortable with that engineered component of restoration is, is an important part of, of kind of optimizing what we can do in the city. And then I think something to think about for, you know, landscapers and, and land managers in rural sitting, settings is just to a certain extent, the city is a little window into the future because mm -hmm. the urban heat island effect makes it a lot hotter. So we can kind of see, and, and you know, population growth and and just the physical sprawl and expansion of cities means to a certain extent we, we're going to continue to see urbanization of our wild and, and rural spaces and it's not necessarily something we, we want to embrace um but to a certain extent some of that's inevitable and, and yeah. so yeah. we we want to learn what we can from cities and 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 also do our best to figure out how to make them as as diverse and healthy as possible. I agree. I agree. I think it, you know, for our listeners, it might be good starting place to kind of rewind a little bit just to talk about the history of NYRP and and what led to the beginning. Like you've been around 27 years now? Is it? Yeah, I mean, I we feel like we were just celebrating our 25th anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> a few years ago. Which which is so. a great accomplishment, but it's it's still in the realm of of 
organization still in, in its infancy, kind of. So yeah. what what brought about the the creation of NYRP? Yeah, so so um, for those who might not have heard of us, we were founded by Bette Midler, okay. the um, entertainer. Okay. Um, and, you know, it may seem like an unlikely match, but she's a really passionate environmentalist and gardener. And, you know, the story that I've been told is she was driving her daughter to school on the West Side Highway in Manhattan. And at that point, the some of the parks in New York City had, had been cleaned up from a real low point of kind of, you know, a real deterioration of yeah. civic and public space in New York in the 70s and into the 80s. And, and, and there was a process of reclaiming that. But in northern Manhattan on the west side where she was driving, the parks were in really rough shape. The okay. city had just didn't have the resources. And so they were literally buried in garbage, you know, and supposedly she pulled over to start picking up litter. And um, from what I know of Bet, I believe that's a true story. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's a real force of nature. And so she just started talking to people about how, you know, this is not acceptable and how do we start to deal with it? And so she um, founded New York Restoration Project, um, beginning to work on those parks on the um, west side of northern Manhattan. Okay. And, and we've really gotten into all kinds of things since then. But that core um, ethic of, of really saying, like, listen, our public space has to be top notch, it has to be healthy, it has to be cared for, um, it still kind of guides what we do. and, and you know, bets like passion for, for really cutting through red tape and just getting things done quality in, in, in the spaces that, that serve New York communities that like that set of values still animates us. And, and that's part of what I really love about the company. So where I, where I first became aware of NYRP was during the million tree initiative for New York city parks, which was, was it, um, Mayor Bloomberg, was it a million trees in 10 years? I, and, yeah. and if I remember correctly, it was roughly 100,000 street trees, 900,000 uh, plants for reforestation. And when I started at Pinelands, we were uh, sending plants to places like Corona Park and, and Casino Park. Um, and if I remember, that's like the Flushing Meadows area, if I'm, I'm correct, like the, the World's Fair type yeah. area. Um, so and, – and, and you were involved in that or the organization was yeah. involved in that. Yeah, so we were we were the major private partner in that initiative. So okay. officially, we were responsible for three hundred thousand of those million trees. And okay. um, so it's the initiative started in in two thousand and seven, um, and I came on in two thousand and eight. So just as it was really getting up to to swing, and so that was um, it was a it was a huge project. It was great. We worked all over the city, you know. Um, unload you know planting street trees um planting cemeteries expanding um natural forests um to, to you know it was really an effort to increase canopy as mm -hmm. well as yeah. um actual number of trees um and so so yeah it was it was a huge initiative um but it really transformed the city you know when you have a a, a big goal like that on paper um, I'm sure a lot of trees got planted that, that weren't the perfect tree in the perfect spot, but it really pushed the needle with canopy cover. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. My neighborhood where I live and work in northern Manhattan has been transformed by it. You know, there are street trees on every block now, and it's a neighborhood that has high asthma rates and, and real public health issues that are impacted by having trees. So that was that was an incredible thing to be a part of, um, and I know other cities have, have 
uh, attempted comparable projects. So no, that I, was really pushed us from the park cleanup into something pretty different. You know, because yeah. when I thought about urban cities as far as uh, being creative or, or pushing, you know, like back in the uh, 90s, to me, it was Chicago was very much on the forefront um, with what they were doing. And this was like to me like the major changing point like when mm-hmm. when this happened you know because it, it there was an understanding as as we continue to grow you know with increased electricity and things like we need to we we need to have the natural resources to be able to to expand or or we're not going to survive so it was really to me a game changer when that happened but what i just thought of and i don't you know it's when you think if you don't know new york city or if you've never been to a, a city, you might easily think, "Well, where are you going to plant a million trees in a city? How many how many more trees do you think you could have planted over and above the million trees?" That's like a good, if, that's if, a good question, but I would say you could you could probably do two million. I mean, the thing is, it gets hard it gets harder and harder. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, if you're talking about a street tree that requires, um, you know being worked into the built infrastructure versus um, a sapling that's being done in forest restoration, it's, it's very mm-hmm. different. And, okay. and they have different kind of impacts on the landscape. And so, you know, I think a lot in the first few years, we got a lot of the low hanging fruit and it got harder, you know, so so toward the end of our time, MRP moved from planting a lot on private property where it was more difficult for our, our city partners to plant gotcha. toward um, focusing on tree giveaways so that we could Mm -hmm. get homeowners to plant them on their property. And so, you know, the last few years, that was our emphasis. Um, And so, you know, every property type kind of requires a different strategy, but just purely objectively, there is still room for, for, for to expand the canopy within the city. Is it, do you find it challenging? I remember one time, this is, wow, this is probably going back about 15 years. I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., which, and that's a city that's really strapped as far as water usage goes um, and their infrastructure. And they were trying to educate the city residents, and they were, like, what they were learning were they were doing rain barrel giveaways. And no one was coming for the rain barrels, and they couldn't understand why. And then they realized that most of the constituents that were going to be using these took public transportation and had no way of actually <laughs> building a rain barrel and taking it home. Like, do you, do you find challenges like that as far as plant giveaways that you just, Oh yeah. Okay. My, my first plant giveaway that I, I worked at, I remember people driving away in taxi cabs with oak trees like, yeah. you know, poking out of the trunk or you'd have people come, you know, who lived in apartments and they wanted to, to get like a native deciduous tree as a house plant. And, and so, um, you know, there, there's definitely all kinds of barriers. And, and, and you know, the project that we got a lot smarter over the years and towards the end, um, we partnered with local organizations that had ties with the community where they were gonna host a giveaway. So okay. we'd work with botanical gardens, we'd work with public schools and, and they would connect to homeowners or, or, or people who, who kind of understood the local issues, understood the property types. And, and so that was a way to make sure the trees really found good homes. Gotcha. Um, and that, that was much more effective than just showing up, you know, with a bunch of trees on the side of the road. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think it goes, um, it's a broader point about um, trying to manage the 
landscape and whether we're talking about like a natural restoration project yeah. in a rural area or, or, or building a community garden, you know, we always kind of say we need to do community engagement and talk to the people that are using our projects, but, um, you know, it has to be authentic and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a good way to do that is, is just to work with groups that already are in a given neighborhood gotcha. um, and don't know the site. Have you seen a change in public awareness over the years since you've been there? Um, not just in in who you are and what you do or what the city's trying to accomplish, but just as as people realizing how important the natural resources are in their their area, maybe trying to protect them a little bit more or or, or take care of them or getting involved even. That's a good question. You know, I think I think there's like a baseline of of interest that. The communities we work with, I think people always want a beautiful spot. They always want access to green, and that really hasn't changed. Yeah. You know, and I think there's there's always been a kind of um, interest in native plants that hasn't fully been met yet. You know, by mm-hmm. the industry, but I would say the the way people talk and think about it has changed a little bit over the time. You know, there's been a couple big shifts over the years, like Hurricane Sandy was um, a real turning point. Yeah. Um, and how New Yorkers thought about climate change and, and like everyone knew it was there, but they didn't, we didn't deal with it in our day-to-day planning work and design work. And, and um, we didn't think so much about climate change when we planted a tree. And so that really turned things dramatically for the city. And then um, more recently, I think it's always been part of MORP's work, but all of a sudden this question of environmental justice it was kind of on the side of a lot of conversations and there was people who cared about the environment and then there was people who you know what like i need to get food on my plate i need a job i need you know safety and and really they're they're connected and and we would always we were saying that until we were blue in the face but i think now everyone's kind of more broadly comfortable realizing you know what like there is kind of systemic racism in, in access to green space and, yeah. and air quality differs, you know, depending uh, on the economic levels and racial makeup of a neighborhood in the city. And so all those issues, I think, have really that's been the biggest recent turning point, I think, over the last couple of years is um, and it's probably again it's less the communities we work with and more like policymakers and, and people who, who make, you know, some some decision makers. Are really they're all talking about environmental justice now and they're all yeah. realizing that um planting trees is, is critical infrastructure and 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 you know there's still a ways to go to to, to value plants as much as we value concrete yeah but i think um we're getting there you know i'm really torn when i think about urban environments because you know obviously we work for a native plant nursery and we advocate uh restoration and native plants but when you're dealing with a, a city ecosystem, it's not a natural ecosystem. And I, I know um, – I think I remember in the 90s when I was at Princeton Nurseries and working with New York City Parks. I, I want to say they were telling me the average span of a street tree in New York City was seven years. I don't know if that's accurate or, or still correct today. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that has changed. But I understand it's not – a natural condition it's an urban condition so you need things that can adapt so for as much as i would love to say it needs to be natives i don't know that that's necessarily attainable because it's not a natural ecosystem that you're trying to support so mm-hmm. like i 
I, you know, I, I'm really torn when it comes to that. That there's natural areas that should be naturalized, but when you get into this the city, I understand yeah. cultivars I mean, that need to be urban tolerant now. Yeah. I, I feel I, I think it, it's it's a good question, and I I think um, you know there there's a real strong consensus amongst the people who manage net designated natural areas. Okay, we're pretty strict about native plants. Um, and local genotypes and, and to be honest i think even those folks are going to have to start shifting more yeah. right because we're going to have to start looking at southern genotypes um and then when it comes to the working in 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 the built environment or gardens um i don't think we should abandon natives although to be honest again like the the standard um forester who's who's picking out a street tree their palette includes a lot of non-native trees and, yeah. and the proportion has shifted recently. It's much more native, but that's not the number one concern of urban arborists for the yeah. most part. And I, I, I actually think we can do both, right? We just need to, um, we need to get a, and people always say we can't go back to 400 years ago, but they still try to, right? Yeah. We still have um, what I call like a restoration framework really. Yeah. And we, we still, we we know that the world changed, but we um, we still have these target communities, right? Of what would have been here before we built the city, yeah. um, and that's and even for again even for wild and rural uh, restoration, that's not really the way to think about it. And so I think for working in the city, we just have to think a little harder over be a little more flexible with our definition of native and and, and expand that idea. Of how, like move away from this idea of a target community that's based on a wild or rural thing or a historical community and, and think much more about like all right this is the climate this is the soil conditions um totally different than what you would have had um and what's the right group of native plants here and it might be in a no novel community but it, it can still do the work right that that doug talamy has shown native plants do in a suburban landscape it can still support this diverse food web. And yeah. in fact, there we can even, you know, in the city, we can do real conservation work that, you know, we have little kind of micro environments that are um, different than rural wild spaces where we can actually potentially do conservation work that that's harder in a wild space. Like, you know, all of our, many of our soils are, are excessively buffered with calcium, for example, from all mm -hmm. the concrete and plaster. Yeah. So where you have problems with acidification, um, you know, impacting like sugar maple regeneration in, in rural forests in New York state, come to New York City, the sugar maples are really happy because there's tons of calcium in the soil. And gotcha. so that's, that's just a small example of how we just need to be more creative and, and and i think people get too discouraged and they think all right the city is is hard it's hard for a, a native plant so i'm gonna get this like all-purpose like you know weedy tree and, and that's the wrong way to think about it we mm -hmm. just need to be um if we do a little more homework about what the right native plant is and maybe look further south you know um like some of my favorite native plants are actually um you know they're from pretty you know like like even from texas you can get plants that look well in the city yeah and you know particularly when we're talking about genotypes of native trees like um one of my colleagues has done work on he does these heating experiments in harvard forest in massachusetts and the maple trees are not doing well in his experiments 
but we know he's heating the soils to, to comparable temperatures to the southern range of sugar maples where the trees gotcha. do fine. Mm -hmm. gotcha. So we just need to get a lot more ambitious about, you know, assisted migration and novel communities and, and how does that work with conservation? Yeah. And, and and maybe stop talking about restoration. Sorry, that was a super long answer. Do you, do you mind talking a little bit more about that? I, I don't know how much you know about that study you were just talking about, but with the, the genotypes and testing out if you warm the soil yeah. on a northern. Yeah. Can you can you go into that a little bit more? Because that's sure. pretty fascinating. Well, the soil warming experiment, there's, you know, there's a, a bunch of different researchers have, have been doing that. The, the, the study I was talking about is by my colleague, Andrew Reinman. And, and he works at the City University of New York now, and mm -hmm. he's got some some soil warming plots with sugar maples, okay. um, and he's got some really interesting results. Um, but another one of my colleagues is um, Rich Hallett at the Forest Service, and and he's leading up uh, a, a project he's calling the um, Urban Silviculture, um, I believe, and he's really he's starting to introduce some 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 really rigorous trials of southern genotypes mm -hmm. in urban landscapes okay. and and i i think it's a it would be fantastic if if growers like you were in touch with with rich and the forest service because if they start to identify appropriate genotypes for for northeastern cities we're going to need people to grow them yeah yeah <laughs> you know? yeah and that's why i wanted to ask is we get that question a lot it's like oh well if i want a tree that's going to grow a hundred years from now, where should I be getting the seed source from them? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, and <laughs> but, that's I, and that's the difficult thing. You know, yeah. I, I can imagine even just making the thing or the determination that hey, we're going to plant natives in New York City. Mm -hmm. It's I'm I'm sure there's plenty of challenges that we just discussed, and 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 many more that we haven't discussed. It's, I, you know, it's it's almost we one of the things that we always talk about here is planting the right plant in the right mm -hmm. place, and yeah. and sometimes. You know, historically things have changed. So maybe what was the right plan a hundred years ago isn't the right plan today. Mm -hmm. You know, you do have climate change. You do have that's going to progress. So maybe if historically sugar maples were there, maybe maybe that would have changed naturally on its own, mm -hmm. even if if that hadn't, you know, if the city hadn't gotten larger or or any of those things. So it's I don't. That's where the lines get blurred for me. I don't know what the answer is. It, it, it's complicated, and you know, it, it really. The, 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 that's kind of the fun part, right? Though, because that means it's it's kind of it's a it's an it's a scientific challenge and it's also a design challenge. Yeah. And there's a role for people to to say, well, this is the kind of forest we want. You know, they're really like when we're talking about forests, they're really human-driven things in the city. And and you know, forest succession is complicated anyway. Yeah. You know, and so it's like a lot of our you know, a lot of our forests were oak hickory forests, or before that they were chestnut oak hickory forests. Um, now, if you walk around in them, it looks like they're becoming, you know, black cherry, hackberry, sassafras forests. And now that's probably like a successional community, and, and, and what that would move to is hard to say. But, um, you know, so a lot of it, I think, is, is actually looking at wild regeneration um and, and understanding you know when you when you look at an urban forest plot um one of the things i love to do is i love to go in and remove the invasives and then you're left with a really cool community of, mm -hmm. uh, of native trees you know like we see um 
I, lo- I love one of the I love getting hickories from you guys because not that many people buy grow hickories. Yeah. Um, but we also see like for some reason hickories do really well um, regenerating. Our oaks are struggling a little mm-hmm. more. But you, you know you see a pretty diverse native forest um, regenerating on its own if you can kind of blunt the pressure of invasion. Gotcha. And so I, I think it's 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 fair to say like is that natural is it not natural and that's where you know maybe it doesn't matter but but what we're doing is we're conserving our our natural history we're conserving biodiversity and and we're making a a beautiful forest and so maybe you take that mix of wild plants and you start to introduce some late successional plants with southern genotypes like a sugar maple from the southern end Mm -hmm. of its range and you just hope that it's going to be all right because you can't really predict this stuff you know when a a community of plants that's assembled over you know since ice age starts to come apart it's not an evenly northward march right it's some some plants are are moving west as they respond to climate change and the communities are kind of you know they're reassembling it in in a way that's not easy to predict and so um seeing that like that's again when people talk about cities being the future we're seeing this kind of reassembly of plant communities, and, and that is an opportunity to learn a little bit about the future of our forest. Is wildlife pressure something that is a factor for you? Do you have deer pressure? Is there, I don't, yeah. you know, I know what it is for us here. I don't know what the deer situation is for you or, or wildlife pressure. It's it's the it's probably the one good thing about gardening in Manhattan. I mean, aside from <laughs> being in Manhattan, if you like it, is that there there are, are no deer. Okay. Every now and then, uh, deer will wander over a railroad bridge into the city, but they they don't really. There's not much of a population. Okay. Um, but the rest of the city has an emerging deer issue, and so yeah, that's um, it's it, it's starting to really impact our forests and our forest restoration. Um. But it's it's still I think not as bad as as suburban landscape. Um, gotcha. And, and you know, w- within Manhattan, there's a a lot of folks, um, myself included. I think the wildlife is actually incredibly abundant, mm-hmm. and and because we don't necessarily we don't have all the same successional dynamics that you might have in an old mature yeah. forest where, you know, you're at your climax and you have sugar maple or hemlock because it was the most shade tolerant. Oftentimes, um, you know, more stochastic or kind of more more like whatever plant gets there is is what you have, and so there's a pretty big impact from birds and um, squirrels. Um, yeah. If they bury acorns there, you're going to get, or if they pre- preferentially eat, you know, I think they might like red oak acorns better. I forget which one, you know. So yeah. they have an impact. People are thinking, and then of course, you know, there's a lot of birds, and so they're one of the main ways invasive spread um so yeah the squirrels and the birds um have a i think an outsized role in 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 our forest for sure yeah i mean technically you you, i guess you want to go with the the prospect that if you build it they will come and you're you're building an ecosystem which includes wildlife so and and hopefully you know you have active birders and and people like that that start to appreciate that interaction and being part of that they, I, another reason they have an outsized impact, like yes, the wildlife is is great, but they also, you know, the levels can be intense because a lot of the wildlife populations will supplement their natural food sources with um, garbage and you know so 
you might a lot of plants will will maybe mast and 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 so that there's there's a kind of um some controls on on the levels uh, of herbivory but but when um all your critters can can supplement their diet with with our food they they can maintain higher levels uh, uh, population levels and so we see like tons of groundhogs in one of the parks i manage and they actually I love seeing them, but they they do a number on, on little trees. <laughs> now, with when when you're increasing native plants and wildlife, like I realize it's being done to help the ecosystem and the inhabitants of of the city. Is is education a, a large portion of your mission? To like, are there? I would imagine that not everyone understands what you're trying to do. That is is technically or basically for them, for their own health and 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 welfare. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, education is definitely critical to what we do. And, you know, I, I manage uh, 80 acres of parkland, which it, it, it's, it, some days it seems like a lot. But when you're when we're thinking about these questions, like how do we have a healthy landscape that is adapted to climate change? Um, and especially if we think it's going well, we want to communicate that to people and we want to make sure people understand that it's a resource um and so education is is absolutely critical okay um, and, and and you know over the years we've had different approaches to education you know when i first started we had a boat building workshop right on the harlem <laughs> river and and uh we used to have uh, a team of urban of of wildlife you know environmental educators um now we do a lot of it um through partnerships similar to the tree giveaways where we work with local groups you know Currently, I've got a great partnership in, in Highbridge Park that, that we're working on piloting this summer. A team of, of um, graduate students from Columbia are, are planning on working with a local high school in Washington Heights. Um, they're going to get some college students to be near peer mentors. Okay. And we're going to bring those um, high school students. They're actually going to get paid to do citizen science work in the park looking at some of the ecosystem services of the landscapes we create oh wow so there, there's like a, a huge array of people really eager to get in and, and take ownership over the spaces whether we're talking about a, a small urban farm or um, a forest restoration project uh, that's one of the things we we've talked about on the podcast numerous times is that it's great to do all these things but you still need some sense of stewardship so, you know, do you, is there a fair amount, I'm going to ask two questions. Is there a fair amount of volunteer uh, throughout the community to be a part of this? And like, and has that increased over the years? And, and just how many, how, how many acres of land do you think you've had your hand in helping to restore since yeah. the beginning? Yeah. And, and, and you definitely touch on an issue, right? Um, and again, it gets back to what's unique about this work in the city is, um, the ongoing stewardship is, is critical. Yeah. Um, and I feel very strongly that um, we don't value the people that care for the land enough. You know, sort of like we don't take good enough care of our teachers. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we kind of treat like the groundskeeper not with not as much reverence as they deserve, you know. It's, it's too often like a guy with a weed whacker who doesn't know the difference between, um, you know, different types of grass for sure. Yeah. So, and, and that kind of, the, the fact that we don't care, it takes a lot of investment in the people that care for the land, 
that the land kind of gives us back uh, a not a very sophisticated answer, right? Where you <laughs> have pavement after turf and concrete. Yeah. But I think everyone lo- like naturally, like we all, I believe in the biophilia hypothesis, right? I think we all like to know the plants in our environment. And so it's a, I think it's a big project to really kind of build a culture that is yeah. a culture of stewardship, right? Where, where the paid workers are, are kind of, taken better care of and, and allowed some autonomy to become more like gardeners yeah. um, and, and really learn about the plants they're working with. Um, and then, you know, and I think that's really critical. Like, I don't, I don't think that our public spaces should really be dependent on volunteers. I think we should, we really need to pay, pay for it and take it seriously. Um, that said, there's a ton of interest in volunteering. Um, and I think it, there always has. But but it's a it's you know it's a it's a fair amount of work to to engage volunteers well and to, to educate them and train them. So you know we yeah. have um, we suspended a lot of that programming through COVID and just this week we we relaunched kind of a regular weekly opportunity for people to come out to the parks we manage, and and the goal is to get local folks who will come out you know every week and really start to learn about the landscape and yeah. and our hope is like we get you know four or five people wow. and that's really a big deal it's like much much better you know it's great to have like a group of of 30 boy scouts for an afternoon and and we get that but i i'd love i love I really i'm really interested in cultivating um kind of long-term stewards who really want to learn about the land yeah. and kind of can become advocates for it as well so so <clears throat> before we get too far into this we talked about where nyrp started we talked about that uh, Million Trees NYC campaign, but we kind of, I feel like we almost glossed over a little bit what you guys do now yeah, and how yeah, you, yeah. where you've gone in the last decade. Um, or I guess when did that Million Trees wrap up? It was, it's been a little while. It's been, now. A, it's yeah. been a little while. And, and, and to add to that, like where you are now, just if, if you can share going back to some of the work that you've done, how it's fared over the years. Mm-hmm. Sure. But before we move on, I, one of the things I was thinking about with what we were just talking about, I wonder if anyone's ever done a study, like as an area gets restored in an urban environment, like if you see like less impact with litter, like if there was hmm. this much litter beforehand, yeah. like after the fact, do you see a change in, yeah. in how it's stewarded just without think- active... I, oh, I was just gonna say, I'm. Sh- I think that there. I'm sure there are studies out there. Like there's, you know, there's a. It's a really burgeoning field of urban ecology and and kind of looking at the interaction between human impact and 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 you know how and then the impact of greening. Um, and and the question of like how well do our there was a bunch of questions there that we should get to, but <laughs> the of, 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 a few questions back of how well our projects do. I think that's really interesting, right? Because I would say they're they're never going to be a hundred percent self-sufficient, yeah. and that mm-hmm. right that's like a goal of the way restoration is is traditionally defined as kind of a self-sustaining ecosystem. And, but but what I find really interesting is that um, we can get really close. Okay. Um, you know, even though when you think about how different the climate and the soils and the human impact is, there's. Uh, and again, I, I I've never seen the studies to really to really draw this out, but m- my experience is that there is a real um, there's a real meaningful threshold where 
you know, we'll, 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 we'll go in and kind of restore a site, plant native plants. And there will be like two or three years of really brutal invasive management. Mm -hmm. um, but then the native plants kind of knit together. Right. And, and we kind of let some, let them do their thing. And, and we might have to come back and do an aggressive weeding once or twice a year, you know, remove dump de debris and, 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 um, the amount of investment needed really it kind of drops mm -hmm. pretty quickly yeah. so it's almost it's not like a totally steady state but but i it's what i, I it's like how i define success and, and and that applies to our wetland projects it applies to meadows mm -hmm. and it applies to forests yeah. you know i think that same kind of you kind of have this this switch that that gets flipped and then it's sort of it's it's close to it, it's a lower input that's required yeah. I'm I'm so glad you brought that up before we go and go back to where I was trying to go. Because um, one of the mis big misconceptions that I hear all the time is a lot of people say, "Oh, okay, we're going to go in and plant all this stuff, and that's it. Then it's it's done." And it's not. That's not yeah. the case. That, like you said, it's you're going back, you're yeah. removing invasives, you're weeding, you're doing management. It's not a um, something where you go in and and one time and it's fixed. It's yeah. And that's why a lot of these big projects we're we're not doing we're growing the plants for but the the companies that are buying them or the the partnerships that are buying them then they're they have like a five year monitoring plan that there is part of that whole bid process it's not just oh yeah we're gonna go plant all the plants and that's it yeah um, so yeah I was glad you brought that up so and I, I would just say I, I think the monitoring is great and right you know it's usually got this kind of adaptive mm -hmm. management framework that acknowledges that you're going to have to go in and tweak stuff. Yeah. But I would say when we're dealing with like a human dominated ecosystem, even outside a city, our yardstick shouldn't be like we monitor it and, and, and hope it does. Okay. Like we got to compare mm -hmm. it to we, nothing else we do is maintenance free, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're going to put in a lawn, you're going to mow it how many times, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to put in a farm, it, you know, so why, why, why would we think, you know, if we're building green infrastructure or yeah. if we're building a wetland in, in a human dominated system, it's going to require care well, that, and most likely uh, it's going to require a lot less care. Right. But to think that you do it with zero care, yeah. that's just, yeah. I don't, you know, I think that's not the right yardstick. No. Well, you know, in, in anything in, in life, you, you, you graduate high school and, and, and 30 years down the road, it's not like you go, well, I did high school. That's all good. None of that changes. I don't need to reevaluate it or look at <laughs> You know, it's, you know, math changes, everything changes. You have to adapt and keep readjusting to what you've mm -hmm. learned and, and continue to learn. It's not just, I did my learning, I'm done. All of that's good. It's stored away and I'm, I'm okay. Like, and even our, our pre, you know, pre, pre New York city forests were managed by the Lenape people mm -hmm. and, um, you know, as were the, the shorelines. Um, and so, so it, it definitely you know it's it remains a persistent idea though i think that you have this kind of um, state of nature yeah um, yeah but but as far as nyrp um you know we had our roots in that in just kind of going into these parks that were had talk about wild they were sort of like urban wilderness you know abandoned cars um you know hybrid park where i still work today was a massive um, it was like a factory for stolen cars that wow. would just get, they were organized by parts and, and, you know, in these sort of invasive thickets. So it was really, um, you know, profoundly neglected parks. And, and um, we got into the work of really going into these, um, you know, pretty intense places where, where not, not that many people wanted to go. So 
it, it gave a real intensity to MRP's work in parks. And the next big initiative um, was our, we inherited, actually we purchased 52 community gardens. Oh, okay. In, uh, I think it was in 99, uh, in the Giuliani administration, there were a bunch of um, city properties that had become informal community gardens and the city was going to sell them off for development. There was a big kind of political debate in the city and, and uh, MRP and the Trust for Public Land got together and bought quite a few gardens and MRP inherited the 52 ones that were in the worst shape. And, <laughs> and so over the years, we've been renovating them and activating them. And most of them are dedicated to urban agriculture now. And that's um, how how has that program fared? You know, when you think of sustainability, there's there's nothing more sustainable than being able to grow your own food or or take care of yourself that way. How how has that program changed for you or, or grown for you? Um, I mean, you know, it, it's it's there's been a real evolution over the years in community gardening in the city. Um, it's gotten more and more established, um, more and more recognized, and and you know, over the past couple of years, a lot of people realized um the depth of food insecurity in the city okay. um you know a lot of it was exacerbated by by covid and the economic fallout but a lot of it was there already okay um you know when i show up to work at the park i manage uh a couple days a week there are lines you know many blocks long of families lining up trying to get food from uh food donation pantries and so okay. that it's it, you know, there's a real deep need for food, and then there's also a deep need for healthy local food um, as well. Um, and so, you know, urban agriculture isn't the only solution, you know, but it's a, it's a big part of it. And there's so it's probably the number one emphasis of NYRP right now is to increase capacity for urban agriculture. And, you know, that has an important piece to it of, um, you know, kind of food sovereignty where people can. We, we build beds and we build infrastructure and let people grow what they want and yeah. um, take ownership for producing their food, learn, you know, create spaces for people to learn about it, um, spaces for people to decompress and garden. Um, you know, it's hugely valuable to the fabric of a neighborhood. And so, um, you know, and one thing we've done over the years that I love is we brought in interesting designers. And so, you know, we MRP tends to we, we try to have everything we do be distinctive and special and well done, because a lot of times the communities we work in might not get as much care as they deserve. And so we'll generally take a chance and do a really creative, cool design. You know, uh, Walter Hood is is a, a, a great landscape architect who's on our board and he speaks really wonderfully about um, black communities that are often given kind of these cookie cutter community gardens and, and and we really try to make them special places. And so uh, it, it's um, it's a part of our work I'm not that involved in, but okay. it's, it's great. And, and we've done a lot of cool gardens. One of the, I, I wish I could remember the name of the food bank, but it's in Massachusetts. And one of their, their things I always say is that if you want someone to get involved and, and make a change, you have to make sure they're fed, <laughs> you, you know, and because that's, that's a main concern for anyone. So if they can sustainably be a part of their own food that that makes a change right then and there to make all the other things easy to me that's a a starting point but um speaking of food one thing that i would love to talk about and we've never in 52 episodes we've never dis discussed this on the podcast um and it's 
and it is an important part of a lot of tidal restorations, but we've never really talked about oysters, mm-hmm. considering how important they are to our ecosystem. Um, but I know you had, uh, I think at Sherman Creek Park, uh, a, a shoreline restoration that included a constructed oyster reef. So I wanted to talk about that because that's really, really important work that we never discuss. It kind of gets glossed over or put behind. And, and I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to come back on just to talk about oysters. <laughs> yeah. talk about that all day. Um, We're going to have the great o- get, oyster I, summit, I yeah. think, at one point. Yeah. You know what? That may be a good rooted discussion. Yeah. We could have we'll the Haskins Shellfish one. Lab from yeah. Rutgers, someone from there. You can yeah. come on. I would love that. I'm really interested in kelp farming now, which is, is kind of an interesting emerging hmm. field as well. All right. All right. Yeah. But um, before I get into oysters, I, I, you guys were talking a little bit about um, food production. And yeah. I, I think also, you know, um, agroforestry is an interesting mm-hmm. area where native plants um, and ecological restoration come together. I don't know if you know my, my buddy Dale Hendricks. Oh, yep. yeah, of course. He, of course. He, 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 he has the a, sire. Really into growing pawpaws and, and, and stuff for agroforestry. He might be an interesting person to chat with uh, dale but, um, I've, I've known dale for a very long time yeah he would he would be a great person the um the oysters um are cool and they're you know it's funny you wouldn't have thought they would be like the charismatic um emblem of restoration but um they were a huge part of new york's history and its economy um and its ecosystem and they were basically functionally extinct. You know, there were oyster reefs all around the city, which were part of the system of wetlands and, you know, eelgrass meadows. And and, um, there's a great group we work with, the Billion Oyster Project, that's been pretty um, aggressively developing uh, curriculum to teach kids and nonprofits about oyster restoration. And um, we really got into it, um, not because we wanted to start oysters, but because we were doing wetland restoration on on a shoreline that had been um on the harlem river was dredged as a shipping canal and a lot of the shoreline is um what we is riprap or bulkhead so it's basically a hardened engineered shoreline so we have a lot of boat traffic and a lot of wave energy and so we were trying to restore the historic wetlands and it, it wasn't working because of the wave energy which actually um you know bill bill young was one worked with us on, on really kind of analyzing the site to figure out what was going wrong and what we needed to do to okay. fix it. And he's the first one who turned us on to using reef technology as a wave attenuator. Um, mm-hmm. And so after many years of planning and, you know, permitting and, and debating and designing, we were able to build an artificial oyster reef out of um, these, they're called oyster castles. Really cool project where where you can just um, stack them by hand or with volunteers. So we we built an oyster reef on the shores of the Harlem River um, in northern Manhattan, um, and we did that to control not control but but to to what we call attenuate the incoming waves, and that allows us to encourage sedimentation, turn around a shoreline that had been eroding where we were losing wetlands quickly, to a site where. Um, we think our, our recent wetland planting will be able to actually grow and 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 theoretically it might um accrete at a rate faster than sea level rise and help us build up the shoreline and kind of protect it into the future wow. so it's a great example of what we we're talking about it's um is it natural restoration 
um, I think probably, right? If we're restoring <laughs> ecosystem function and we're using mm -hmm. native plants, but we're, um, we're kind of engineering it for an environment that is, is, is a lot more, um, has a lot more challenges than a, a normal wetland restoration. No, if you think about that, the the energy, because that's an unnatural condition. So you have, I'm sure, hard bulkheads nearby that are changing wave energy and and yeah. and all of that that you can't fix. It's not like you can go upstream or downstream and fix yeah. any of that. It's it's not it's no longer natural. So you have to fight it with what you have to fight it with to to make it as natural as you can. And and the, and the simple solution is is to just build a higher wall. Um, but that's actually the more expensive solution. And it's also, you know, it's not healthy. It's, it, it cuts off access to the water. Yeah. So it's, I, I love this project because it's like a win-win, right? It's mm -hmm. really showing what our shorelines can be like right now, you know, you, you can walk down and, and what's amazing is, um, the oyster reef is covered with oysters. So we designed it for the wetlands. <laughs> um, but, uh, last year was apparently a great year for, um, oyster spat colonization in the estuary and uh so the oysters are doing great um and on friday one of our partners uh scientist chester zarna is going to be introducing mussels into the wetlands in a kind of experimental design so we can start to see how the mussels are going to do in our in our constructed wetland as well now if you, if you don't mind me asking i feel one of the the concerns over oysters at least over their use in new jersey um, has been uh, some of these waterways aren't the cleanest waterways, and they were worried about people, if they put oysters out there, people then going saying, oh, I can go get all these oysters, and then eating them and getting sick because of the contaminants that were in the water. Is that a situation that you're seeing play out in, in New York City as well? or? Luckily, the, the regulators have a slightly different take on it. I, I know some of my colleagues in New Jersey have complained about, I think that's a bigger hurdle for oyster restoration in Jersey. Um, and, you know, again, it may have to do a little bit in the city with the assumptions, like most people in the city are not going to assume that they're going to eat stuff from the Harlem River. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably yeah. less of an issue. Um, but, you know, it's an issue. You know, there people fish from the Harlem. And I think you're allowed to, um, I think you're probably allowed to eat one or two a year. So I, I you know, I, I don't know that it's, you know, and I think people eat a lot more, but over, um, there over... are still PCBs in the sediment. Um, the city has, um, a combined sewer overflow system. So when it rains, raw sewage goes into the estuary. Gotcha. So, so the water quality has gotten a lot better since the clean air, clean water act was passed. Um, mm -hmm. It's great, but yeah, you can eat the oysters. You probably are not going to be able to eat them in my lifetime. Um, no, but but our, but our, the whole uh, hopes of that, I would imagine, is that they help improve water quality. So if you oh, phenomenal, yeah. So yeah. if you get a big enough community over time, it will help combat yeah that mm -hmm. issue. And I think if you stabilize, uh, you know, the PCBs and there's some of those longer term things that are are a little trickier. Um, but yeah, I mean what they do for water quality is phenomenal. And so they're, if they're going to allow us to bring back swimming, fishing, boating, recreational uses mm -hmm. of the river, and, and, and that to, all that requires is a bit of an educational campaign, like, hey, don't eat the oysters here. <laughs> to me, that's like, for that to be a hurdle on something that's as powerful mm -hmm. and effective, and, and, and you know, to and, me, and, it gets to another big thing, which is just managing risk. And yeah. in urban situations, we sometimes we don't do 
projects because we're worried a little bit about risk when we're especially when we're talking about something new yeah. you know like some, some parks don't like community gardens and farms because they're worried there might be lead in the soil and mm-hmm. kids might you know so yeah. that there's there's issues around risk but i think it's important that we don't you know collectively we don't let um concerns about risk stop us from innovating yeah that's no. how we get to a cleaner healthier environment and, you know so i'm a big advocate for oyster restoration and, and you can't assume either i you know we know that the city has gotten proactive in fixing some of those sewer overflows so I, what was the one in our catalog was it i, I want to say it, it was either bronx or brooklyn um where they they completely retrofitted the sewer overflows to fix it and they put in creative wetlands and they were saying the the residents immediately noticed a difference just in the the odor of the neighborhood yeah oh it was in it was in flushing i think oh yeah it was was in flushing (laughs) which made it just connected because of that yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) so um it was flushing bay so um so we know the city is getting proactive as far as fixing these too so you can't just assume that it's going to continue to have the same issues over time that hopefully they improve mm-hmm. as well yeah i mean the 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 cso problem is a big environmental issue for the city and you know green infrastructure has gone a long way to help but we're not there yet yeah <laughs> so, you know, i think it, unfortunately we, we've got a ways to go and, and i think you know, ideally we, we um, control our, our runoff before it hits the estuary, but um, I think oysters are, are unfortunately going to have to be a big part of the solution for water quality because we're still, um, there's a lot of runoff. You know, nitrogen, globally humans have one of our biggest impacts that we don't think about as much. We think a lot about the carbon cycle, but we really messed up the nitrogen cycle. And so, you know, um, all the nutrients in our waters are, are, it's just one of the biggest environmental problems. You know, um, we talk about harmful algal blooms and fish kills, and that's all from excessive nutrient runoff into our waters and, and oysters do a great job at, um, binding some of that into the sediment and, and cleaning up the waters and removing excess sediment and stuff. So, Hopefully we'll see more of them. And if any regulators from New Jersey are listening, we haven't had anyone eating them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I would love to know just over over time, because I know it's a newly constructed oyster reef, just over time, the, the water quality, mm-hmm. if, you know, what, what the changes are in that area yeah. over time. Now, now here's a, another oh, question. Sorry. Oh, you, you go, Jason, then I'll... I'll uh... I was just going to say, I don't think we'll probably have a measurable impact on water quality, right? Because it, it's so oh, mixed, true. so well mixed. That's very true. But we are um, the same same scientist who's, who's installing mussels this week is doing some, um, he's doing a pretty thorough ecosystem services evaluation. So he's looking at um, sediment nutrient storage and kind of nutrient fluxes on site. Okay. So he's doing a really cool um, work to see, you know, this kind of comprehensive wetland oyster restoration what's it doing for um nitrogen and phosphorus in particular mm-hmm. on site and are we able to um enhance the the really are we able to how are we able to clean air and water on site okay yeah, very cool awesome. so you mentioned that you were working with that billion oyster project um which i learned a little bit about and i know they're doing a lot of stuff in new york city i guess it's all in new york city but yeah is it going to be easier to to plant a billion oysters or was it easier to plant a million trees? <laughs> I'm definitely going to say it's easier to do a billion oysters. Okay. Um, and partially is that because I'm not doing it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, I and to be honest, like I think just like trees and oysters, like it works way better if they plant themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I know you guys sell trees, so um, I think there's a great value in buying and planting trees. But you know, it's also great just to um, let them regenerate. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. you know, luckily with the oysters, um, the same thing with the trees. It's about having the right landscape for them. And, and with oysters, you know, there's been so much changes to our shoreline morphology. There's not necessarily all the right um, structure for them to latch onto. And so a lot of their work, I think, is about building the reef structure so that the oysters can colonize rather than actually planting individually a billion of them. Yeah, I mean, I know we love native plants, but they're only one piece of the puzzle. All these things, you know, we always talk about balance. Oysters are important. That's one thing we've never talked about, but that's an important part of of what we do, you know, and it's yeah. we, we need to focus on the waters the same way we mm-hmm. focus on the land. And I mean, and ideally, right, part of the reason we think it's going to be a, res- a shoreline that's resilient to storms and sea level rise is the um, oyster reef is going to protect the wetland. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping, you know, the, the mussels and the spartina being interplanted will, will help the spartina establish and, it, you know, um, hopefully increase, um, there's some evidence it can increase the ability of the spartina to sequester carbon and, and have like deep root growth. If they're if they're um, grown with mussels, you know, even just for for our shorelines, when you think of all the 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 sea walls that have been put up and, mm-hmm. and the hardscaping, um, you know, the result in you, you hear all these oh we had to bring in you know x many tons of sand to replenish the sand that is washed away. Well, that's a direct result. If if you would yeah. think of the cost you would have saved if you would have restored your natural dunes and shorelines to to attenuate that naturally we wouldn't be having a lot of these uh, we we create it most <laughs> most of these issues and and you don't find out till after the fact most of the time well, or we created them or we created a system where we couldn't handle these issues anymore yeah. you look at our battery islands yeah. just all across across the coast of new jersey and new york and maryland and delaware wherever yeah. Those were always shifting and moving, yeah. but then we put houses there and we couldn't yeah. allow them to shift and move. Like the Mississippi yeah. River has moved miles over even just humans being on North America. But then you put in residences and buildings and, and hardscaping. Well, now we can't let it move anymore. That's been more of the issue. <laughs> you need to have. You need to find for a guest a uh, fluvial geomorphologist. Oh, I already. Just so I was can, <laughs> looking it up. Just so, so could, you can just say it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, well, we is is there one project over the years that, since you've been involved that you're most proud of that yeah. that that really just makes you like, yeah, I'm doing this for all the right reasons. I mean, building this oyster reef was amazing, right? You know, especially last year, we had planned to have hundreds of volunteers come out, but it was um, middle of lockdown. The project was put on hold. Um, I think we had to delay our order of, of plans from you guys. And then finally we got permission to do it. So we were just small groups of us lugging these blocks out um, with masks on um, into the river to build a reef. So that was huge. Um, and to be able to, to do something this meaningful for climate change is huge. But but I, I think my favorite project was um, uh, we did a, a restoration of American chestnuts just oh. up the slope from this um, oyster reef project. And um, you know we planted 200 hybrid chestnuts grown by the American Chestnut Foundation. 
So, so they were, you know, they've been breeding them for over 30 years yeah. with disease resistant trees. And so they call them potentially disease resistant. And so, um, you know, I think they're optimistic that this generation is going to fare well. And, um, so to me, and so this was like the largest disease resistant planting done in any urban landscape. Oh, wow. And we, we did it, you know, when I was talking about the parks we inherited, this was in the same spot where those chop shops were. Okay. Right. So this was a, a park that literally no one cared about. Like, I mean, the, 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 the neglect was really profound, right? Okay. Um, it's near a highway, it's near the Harlem river, which also people don't care about. So, you know, to take that and not just say we're going to clean up the cars, but we're going to do something that's meaningful on conservation. Um, you know, that's actually going to help bring back a species that, that is on the brink of extinction. You know, I can die happy having planted those trees and, you know, hoping that 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 some of them are going to make it um, because it's a really cool tree. And, and it's just to me, it's like um, it's also an investment in the communities and, and saying, like, you know, in, in, in setting a high level of expectation for what's possible. Yeah. I for, mean, for, mm -hmm. our, for, for neglected spaces in the city, it's it's such a part of our heritage that our children don't even understand at this point because they've never known it they yeah. they they don't know and even i'm i you know it 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 is beyond me but at, at least i'm not far enough removed that i don't understand it you know my yeah. kids have no idea and and will never know so hopefully i'd love uh, you know it sounds like i need to come up and visit and say hello and see mm -hmm. this project yeah. <laughs> yeah and i mean you're not alone i mean none of us know what the chestnut forests were like yeah really. i mean you know i was trying to research the project and and do a, like a literature review and and you know kind of modern ecology was was just being developed you know the chestnuts were already gone so yeah. the kind of information you have about most of our trees we don't have about chestnuts um, but we know, yeah, the, we know, you know, it's a critical part of colonial society um, and a critical part of our forest. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we always, you know, it receives attention, but, but it's, it's on the verge of being able to be restored. Um, you know, there's a new transgenic tree that is um, under a process of being potentially approved for use in the landscape. And so um, another example, I think, of how we want to get comfortable allowing some human influence on, on our wild spaces because we're actually, you know, we're losing so many trees to invasive problems and human caused problems. To be able to bring one back is uh, is a good thing. So, uh, before we start to wrap up, I know we're getting close to the end of our time. We, you talked about how NYRP did some stuff in regards to environmental justice, and I don't want to gloss over that. So I want to just take a minute or two for you to talk about some of the things that you are doing in New York City in regards to environmental justice. Sure, and, and you know, the, the, the biggest single thing we do is um, is is uh, our community gardens, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the city, which are open for the community to use for food production. Um, and, and we try to allow those spaces to be governed by the local communities as they want. Um, you know, and then our investment in parks is tailor is targeted towards communities you know part of it's um we have a long-term management agreement with the city and the neighborhood has changed over the years but but that investment was targeted based on on parks that had been really neglected and served communities that had you know major health problems um because partially uh exacerbated by a lack of access to green space 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think re- the big change isn't that work. It's just that people real are comfortable realize acknowledging that you know there there is an aspect of of racism and and um, inequality in in the distribution of resources that we can't get away from. And mm-hmm. really, just kind of admitting that you know is a big is a big shift. And, and you know, the last project that I, I when I was talking about like the evolution of MRP. You know, we started in the parks and then we got into, we bought these community gardens and renovated them. Then Million Trees kind of landed on us for yeah. uh, about eight years and we finished a little early, but um, now our project that we really do that that reaches all across the city is my favorite kind of thing. It's, I think of it as much more sustainable, much more like human neighborhood scale. It's called Gardens for the City. So okay. any group, that any community that might have like a, an, a schoolyard, an abandoned lot behind a church, a community center, they submit an application to us. Um, we come in fairly quickly, cheaply, build raised beds, renovate the garden, just activate the space. And so, you know, we've done seven of them so far this spring. Um, you know, we've we've done about over 200, I think, since the program oh, started. Wow. Wow. And, um, you know, so each one of those is a mini farm, a mini refuge, and, and those, and it's great because so many people have this kind of top-down approach to restoration, and and this is or gardening or or you know whatever urban renewal. This is basically like we're listening, and you come to us and say this is I want this here, and then it solves that maintenance problem we were talking about, yeah. right? Because we're not building something, having a ribbon cutting, and walking away. We're we're um, working with an existing group that is. Mm-hmm. is in theory, going to be there to care for the space and use it. Awesome. So, um, it, it, it to me, it, it's an example of the of MRP getting smarter and more sensitive as we've matured as an organization. That we're able to really be responsive and do this project that that's like it's not generating as many headlines, but it's yeah. it's uh-huh. on the ground. You know creating and improving all these little gardens everywhere. So it's a really cool, cool project. That's awesome. So I think that directly speaks to a lot of, you know, we, again, we target neighborhoods where it's really needed. I, you know, Jason, one thing I, I have to say is I love your passion for, uh, for everything that we've talked about. And I'm, I'm curious and I'm curious about this for a lot of our guests is you're such a great representative of NYRP and and the passion that you do, and I want to thank you for all the work that you do. But how did you find your way? You're such a good fit. How did you end up here? It, it was a long and crooked road, like <laughs> probably many people who wind up in horticulture. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I my dad was a landscaper in Brooklyn, so I grew up kind of building small gardens and rooftop gardens and. Um, I went on to actually become an art teacher and got a, a degree in art. Um, but while I was doing that, I, I did a couple summers with the Nature Conservancy, right. um, doing habitat uh, stewardship, and that was that was kind of a wake up call for me. I loved it, um, and it took me a long time, you know. And I decided that ship had sailed, and 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 you know, I, my, unfortunately, I didn't become a famous painter um, <laughs> yet. Uh, and, and so I thought horticulture was maybe a way to go when I wound up back in New York City where I, where I, I was born and never thought I would get into ecological restoration um, in the city. Um, but finding my way to NYRP, I, I got more and more interested in the natural systems that we were caring for. Um, ended up going back to school for environmental science and just find the kind of um, 
the challenge and, and potential of natural restoration in these dense urban neighborhoods is, is so huge that that I, I just that's where my energy for it comes from because MRP has, has built these like incredible projects that are beautiful and full of life. And I just want to see more of that, you know. Yeah, when 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 things are back to normal and we start having our customer appreciation uh, uh, events again, we'll have to make sure you're here and we'll introduce you to Kelly Gill from the Xerxes <laughs> Society. If you don't know her, she was also another artist that that found her way to the industry. She was mm-hmm. saying her biggest flaw was if someone liked her work, she gave it away. That was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think as long as you're not trying to make a make a lot of money as an artist, that I think it's the better way to go. Probably. Yeah. So we, I know you're on a timeline, and and we need to start wrapping this up. Uh, we always end with with two things, and uh, one of them being is, what is your favorite native plant? Do you have a favorite native plant, or can you name I, just one? That's tough. I'm gonna. I was gonna pick a genus, but um, <laughs> you can do that. We we I have do, no limitations do, on this. I I do really love. I'm uh, I'm gonna say since I have to pick one, I'm gonna say swamp rose mallow. Oh, very um, nice. Particularly because you guys sell it, um, <laughs> so that's my plug for Pinelands. Um, but you know when we were talking about stuff that does well in the city, it's like um, we planted along highways in ditches. Mm-hmm. And then it it, it, does, it loves like the salt spray and yeah. poor drainage, and then you have this incredible blossom, and you think you're in the tropics, and it's just like, it's it's an incredible trooper, and it's so unexpected uh, that that's got to be one of my favorites. That is a great choice, yeah, and and you know you're right. That's a plant that you see, and you don't necessarily it. You think it it looks a little more tropical, but it it's native to here, and you get that mm-hmm. variation from seed, whether it's white or pink, yeah. and it's uh, it can take has some salt tolerance can take some permanent inundation is very adaptable and it's it, and it, it it's a very net i i stop every time i i walk by one that that's a great one so how can our listeners if they want to support nyrp or get involved or volunteer how can they do that um so as i mentioned if anyone wants to make their way to, to northern manhattan we've got regular volunteer uh opportunities there um, you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, and, and if, if uh, anyone wants to do like a small sustaining membership, uh, you know, a small contribution goes a long way for our organization and MRP.org. We have our newly uh, redone website, so it's really easy to, to find out how to support us if you go to, go to our website. Awesome. On our web on our website, we're going to share all of your social media links. Website, we're going to share. You have a fantastic video uh, for the oyster restoration at uh, mm-hmm. Sherman Creek. Is it? Is that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, Creek, and, and and we're going to make sure we share all that so our listeners will be able to see. We'll share it on social media so uh, everyone will be able to find you. Um, so uh, we kind of always end this up with a final thought where. You can kind of you have the floor. We we'll give you you can use it for as long as you want. If you want to summarize, promote something, uh, however you want to use it, the floor is yours. Um, uh, we talked about so much, but I guess since I'm talking to you guys, I would just say um, thank you, a for for you know your work. We would you know there's not that many people who grow good native plants, especially. Um, you know, a lot of the upland plants can be a little hard to find. Um, yeah. And uh, so we really value that. I, and I would just say if there are people in the industry listening, I hope we can continue to work together. Um, 
you know, pushing the needle on native plants as we were starting to touch on and thinking about mm -hmm. how do we find kind of reliable, genetically diverse, but verified populations that, that, um, we can, that work in urban setting, settings and, and we can start to um, really support conservation and healthy urban ecosystems by starting to kind of expand how we think about native plants. Think awesome. about southern plants and think about different communities and, and kind of that work is going to, I think, have to be a collaboration between growers and regulators and, and designers and, and people who like plants. So. I agree. We're all in this together. Tom, yeah. do, you, do you want yeah, to go? Or? Yeah. So, and Jason, you even just let into my <laughs> thought a little bit because you, you referenced it earlier, how, um, how when safety is the first thing on everyone's mind, you don't really have a lot of progress and you don't take chances. And that's uh, one of our, our newer coworkers has a phrase, safety third. And Mike Rowe even brings up how like safety first is like the, the terrible thing because it makes you actually stop thinking about your own yeah. safety because you think someone else is looking out yeah. for you. But, uh, but he uses this phrase safety third and it's basically all science and all progress is been by pushing safety aside and taking a little bit of risk. And, uh, yeah, we aren't going to make that progress unless we take a little bit of risk and yeah. and try some new things. Yeah. And no, they might not work, but yeah. maybe they will. And, and I, I, I'm all for safety third, but yeah. I also think <laughs> a lot of the time it's also just real understanding, like a realistic risk assessment. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, as you can see in our, our political debates about like COVID, we don't always do a good job evaluating risk. Yes. And I yeah. think, oddly enough, it actually affects our landscape yeah. as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. You know, for me, it's it's really simple. You know, I think when a lot of people think about nature, they think about the woods somewhere off mm -hmm. in the distance, not around them. You know, nature is all around us, and it's in it's in our cities, it's in our suburbs, it's in our our, our countryside. So, mm -hmm. you have to think outside that box a little bit, and and what it means to all of us, because we, you know, in a lot of these places, it keeps diminishing as as real estate becomes more valuable, especially in COVID, we see uh, more warehouses, things like that. So. Really, it's not just protecting a forest somewhere. It's it's protecting every bit of open space we have around us because mm -hmm. it's important and it, it's it's diminishing. So, just yeah. uh, you know, it's it's something you everyone needs to realize. Yeah, yeah, and and realizing we can um, with a little bit of creativity, we can you know, we can have it in our backyard, exactly, in our, or our park. Yep, exactly. exactly. Well, that wraps it up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Jason Smith from the New York Restoration Project. For more information, visit nyrp.org uh, or all the links at our website yes. that we're going to put up there. Yep. You can find them there as well. Uh, thank you, everyone listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pinelands Nursery. We're giving a huge thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Uh, as things open up, they're going to be playing live again in the Philadelphia area, so we'll make sure we'll we'll keep you up to date on that as they're out. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. Ask a question, leave a comment. If we pick your question or comment, we'll play it and answer it on a future episode of The Buzz. And thank you to all the new members of the Native Plant Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, thank you for contributing and becoming a member and keep it going. Let's let's keep growing that community. Yeah, we have a couple comments to reply to right after this. So all right, awesome. You can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you consume your podcasts. Um, when you're there, please leave a five-star review and hit that subscribe button. 
uh, button and um, and leave us a little message if you can. It yeah. really goes a long way in in spreading our message and, and making us feel better. And, and, and we always too. we do try to respond, and that oh, yeah. that will come yeah. back to a listener shout out that we have in the upcoming. Uh, episode of the buzz yeah with that thanks everyone i'm tom and i am fran thank you again everyone uh jason thank you so much uh coming up next we have a buzz episode uh un- undetermined, undetermined. Uh, TBD. yeah <laughs> undetermined topic but uh that will be coming up next and uh we'll see everyone next time until then keep it native Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.